everything going. Welcome to Campfire Football. I'm Sebastian North. This is episode 130 and the third live stream on YouTube. This is the seven big questions of the Premier League season 2022-2023 reviewed at the mid-season point. Man, after the opening weekend of the season, it was crazy. There were so many questions that came up, but I really wanted to focus on a few that I could see riding out for the remainder of the season. So, started with three, then it turned into five, then it turned out to be seven, which is where I settled. And up until this point, we've been able to get a real idea of where some of these stories are going. Some have completely taken a turn, and some are very much still up to be seen and decided for. So... In game week one, uh, Thomas Tuchel, uh, his Chelsea at the time, narrowly beat Everton. They were in total flux with players coming and going. Man United lost 2-1 at home to Brighton. Spurs thumped Southampton 4-1 for Conte to underline these top four ambitions that they had. Man City beat West Ham 2-0, while Fulham held Liverpool to a 2-2 draw, creating a two-point gap between Man City and Liverpool right off the bat. Uh, And over the past five seasons... Those two have been the dominant side, so it made you ask a question. Newcastle won 2-0 against big spenders Nottingham Forest. Brendan Rodgers as Leicester uh, had still not made a single signing over the course of the summer at that point. So I looked at all these different situations. How would they develop? And, of course, one final thing was how would the World Cup, being midseason, change everything and create a completely new dynamic? So let's start with question number one. Question number one is Todd Bowley's Chelsea. What will it look like? Now, you have to remember, the Bowley board took over really close to the end of last season. There were just a few games to go, and they were finally in charge. They were in the stands for a couple of the final games. And the summer was peculiar. Uh, Look, Barcelona were active in such a bizarre way that I think they got a lot of attention. Uh, Chelsea got quite a bit as well, and it was for the way that they were chasing signings. Todd Bowley was the acting sporting director at the time. It it was kind of strange. And, of course, Thomas Tuchel, because he was trying to craft the side that he would need to impress the new new owners and and, and to to deliver something bigger than just, you know, having eked his way to a Champions League title. It was an amazing win, yes, but there needed to be some dominance in the league starting to show and, and some progress in terms of closing the gap on Manchester City and Liverpool. So Thomas Tuchel seemed to have some final say on who should come through the door or not, uh, reportedly rejecting the idea of bringing Cristiano Ronaldo from Man United, a a decision that I think was absolutely the correct one. But you could see that there were also signings that were being made that were more club signings, you know, young players that weren't necessarily ones that Tuchel had been like looking at and deciding, I want this guy. Now, Raheem Sterling came early, and he looked like very much a signing that the board wanted to to do. But also, you know, Tuchel probably through the airwaves heard Raheem Sterling may be available, and that would be a great player to bring in to help score goals. He came in early. Carney Chukwameka came from Aston Villa. Gabriel Slolina from D.C. United. Cesare Cassidy, I don't remember where he came from, the young Italian man. All these guys were brought in more for the future. And then the more desperation, bigger signings started happening. So Khalidou Koulibaly came in, and this was with quite a bit of fanfare. I think a lot of people were excited about this. Wesley Fofana, he followed for a ludicrous fee while Leicester were just going and playing hardball. And this was one of those situations where as a Chelsea fan, you you kind of look at it and you go, is there really not an option 
at less than 80 million pounds for a good center back, especially since, you know, though Wesley Fofana is a very good player and we know this, he's dealt with injury a lot in the last couple of years. He's injured again for a long time right now. And then Mark Kukurea came in for a crazy fee. Now, he started very well. I think his first two matches, he was very good. He has looked like he's just been struggling since. And he was just sort of plucked out right when Manchester City seemed to be in pole position to sign him. Something that we have noticed become a little bit of a theme, right? Now, you have to keep in mind, there was a problem with the front line for Chelsea, and this is something they needed to address. Lukaku went back on loan to Inter. Timo Werner went back to Leipzig. Uh, Armando Broya got his contract extended, but of course, then he got a season-long injury. So while Barcelona were up to their 4D chess and levers and everything, uh, Aubameyang became available. Tuchel took the bait, and I don't think this was a good idea from the beginning. Anyway, the the deal was reportedly structured in some way to get Marcus Alonso going the other direction. I still look at this and go, well, there was a sort of a forward player that is clinical in the box that was available at the time from Barcelona, and his name is Memphis Depay. They're trying to offload him now. Would he have been better than Aubameyang? I think absolutely as an investment, he would have been better than Aubameyang. But Aubameyang came in, has not really done much of anything, and he seems like he's probably going to be on his way at some point. The last arrival, and the one that seemed probably the strangest one for for everyone at Chelsea at the time, and it mystified everyone for different reasons, was Denis Zakaria, the Swiss international. He came over from Juventus on loan and like a 3 million euro fee or whatever, and we did not see a single bit of him. I think in only one match we saw him uh, before the World Cup. Uh, under and, and we only saw him, I don't know if he played under Tuchel, actually. This is something I, I would need to double check. So it was clear that he was a body brought in, maybe an agent in behind the scenes, maybe someone in the club was like, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a body, he's worthy, but he's, you can take him on loan, could be good. It's actually turned out to be quite good until uh, he got injured last night against Fulham. And we'll get into that, obviously, a little bit later. But Tuchel needed bodies. And whether he got the right personnel is another story. But And it's really not been answered very well. But he still needed to get the team playing well. That was a really important piece of the development of the squad. Because they had been awful in most of 2022. Struggling to score goals, even with Lukaku and Werner and... You know, Havertz and all the options, they still struggled. And they had lost that defensive solidity that took them to the Champions League final. Remember, they were thrashed by Brentford in the spring. Antonio Rudiger scored a worldie, um, made a funny face, was all excited about it. And then Chelsea just fell apart, conceded four goals, lost 4-1. And it was an embarrassment. And, And these kinds of performances were coming a lot in the end of the season. So it was time for Tuchel to sort of challenge for a title. Again, did he get the players that could do that for him? Possibly not. But once the season started, you didn't really get the feeling things were going in the right direction. The famous London derby with Spurs where Chelsea had the lead with seconds to play, but they conceded for a 2-2 draw. Tuchel and Conte, of course, this is a quite brilliant moment of the Premier League, a very very beginning of the season when they had the handshake and they they got in a row on the sideline and there was a whole things kind of erupted. That was a quite terrific performance from Chelsea. They were completely dominant. They couldn't quite capitalize on it to win the game. And Golo Kante 
injured his hamstring in an injury that I remember at the time being like, ooh, man, this might be the end of his Chelsea career because that's a bad injury. He's going to be nursed back. He probably won't go to the World Cup, and we don't know, you know, with this contract ending, what's going to happen, right? So that that was a blow. And for that game to end 2-2 was unfortunate, but it was a fantastic performance. The next four matches for Chelsea were up and down, but they were worrying because the, the performances were not good. They capitulated 3-0 to Leeds at Ellen Road, narrowly beat a poor Leicester side. They were embarrassed 2-1 by Southampton at St. Mary's. And then, of course, there were... Uh, I think uh, Roman Lavia, the the young player from Southampton who had scored, he had just come from Man City, and all of a sudden Chelsea were possibly in with a shout to sign him before the window shut, even though he'd been at Saints for just a month. It was it was weird, all the rumors coming up. Anyway, they were incredibly fortunate to beat West Ham. This was Maxwell Cornet hit the, hit the post with a header when it was 1-1, and then Chelsea went down the field and scored to make it 2-1, and then there was Maxwell Cornet uh, who finished – a goal, but Jared Bone had been judged to sort of kick Edouard Mendy after he spilled the ball. They were very lucky in that game to end up with a 2-1 victory. Um, but, the, you know, they, they were wretched in that whole time. And then you could see that Tuchel, his sideline demeanor was bad. It was just not good. He was always yelling at people. He was constantly looking frustrated and annoyed. There didn't seem to be any good vibes going on between him and the players at any point. And that just looks toxic. And some of the older players started to look a little disillusioned. Anyway, they lost to Dinamo Zagreb in the Champions League. The next day, he was sacked. And it was quite a shock. I mean, I think an Abramovich era, uh, maybe we would have been like, well, it's not too crazy. I mean, it's crazy, but it's not too, too. It's kind of in line. For the Bowley board to do this was really bizarre because they had just spent the whole summer planning with Tuchel, got him Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and a bunch of other players, and then that's it. You're gone. So very strange. It seemed like there was a relationship that had gone sour there, and Graham Potter was tapped up to take over. Now, he's been apparently the he is the most expensive coach ever brought in from a club, the highest fee paid to bring a coach to a new club. Wow. Chelsea have to set all kinds of funny records, don't they? Well, it was a little bit of a surprise, but his CV does warrant that he gets some kind of a big chance somewhere, I guess. I mean, it's not like he got uh, Brighton into Europe, which had he done that, maybe over the course of two seasons, that would show a certain level of achievement versus just sort of taking a club that was middling towards the relegation zone and taking them into mid-table with nice quality play. That's great to do, but getting a club into Europe once or twice in a row, I, you know, I think that's that's more of a, a mark of, of a coach that's trying to get into those high levels. Um, but look, I, I was excited for Graham Potter. I thought that the, the way he coached Brighton was was great, and I thought that he he's just merits a chance, right? Just, just throw it out there. What's the worst thing that can happen? And if you want this guy to build for the future, maybe he's the right guy. We don't know. Started pretty well. Potter went unbeaten for the first nine games of his tenure. But performances were not convincing, and they weren't really beating good teams. And then all of a sudden, injuries started to accumulate, and results turned. And the results turned with the performances not already being good. Once they ran into difficult teams, it was it was much harder. And they only won one of their last six games going into the World Cup break. So they needed that break. In the time off from matches... 
They hired two scouts, Paul Winstanley and Kyle McCauley. They got Christopher Vivell from RB Leipzig as technical rec- director. You know, the idea of bring people together and get the strongest minds in the room to make things happen. Um, now, of course, we are at that midway point. The transfer season is open again, and the club have already made a splash Mostly on young players for the future. They've they've spent I don't know north of a uh, uh, 150 million so far, but there also needs to be addressed uh, immediately things that they need now. And um, most of the summer deals just have not worked out to be quite charitable. Fafana has been injured. Aubameyang is reportedly desperate to leave and depressed. Kukurea, like I said, started well. His form has slid off considerably. Koulibaly just he just hasn't had. Um, a consistent run of g- great performances. He's had some good ones, but he's also made some mistakes. He's gotten a couple goals. That's not the worst thing. And Sterling. Sterling, I mean, he looks dejected to be a guy who's probably brought in to be a second striker, and at times he's playing left and right wing back. I mean, it's a little ridiculous. And, I mean, he was he was also doing this uh, under Tuchel at times. So, really difficult. I mean, then you've got rumors of who is going to come in. Uh, Enzo Fernandez was a wild, wild transfer idea. Apparently, they were trying to meet, uh, hijack the Mikhailo Mudrik deal from Arsenal. Not sure if that's going to happen. I, I think Arsenal will probably be able to convince him to come to the Gunners. But, you know, it's as if the club sort of currently has really no idea what the signings that they need or want. Uh, Andre Santos from Vasco da Gama came in. David Datro Fofana from Molda. And he looked actually quite good on his debut. Benoit Badiashil from Monaco. Let's hope that he, you know, achieves some of his potential and doesn't turn into the next team of Bakayoko. These guys have all been confirmed, and I'm sure there's more to come. Of course, we also got Joao Felix, who came in from Atletico. And uh, it's interesting with Simeone reportedly leaving in the summer, it seems like this loan deal, which does not have any attachment uh, option to buy or obligation to buy or whatever, looks like he's just going to be here. Nine million it cost. He just got sent off last night, so he'll be out for three games, which I think totals out to something like 1.5 million pounds per match he misses, and he will be making yeah about five to seven hundred thousand per game that he's involved in. That's it's kind of amazing. So yeah, sent off last night, unfortunate, but he was actually he was good. So hopefully when he comes back, he can give something to Chelsea. But window's still open for two weeks. We'll see. I think this bully board went from having quite a bit of uh, respect in the early goings and and people being willing to accept okay look it's it's new it's it's they're trying to figure it out they're trying to get the landscape they're doing the best they can but now it's starting to look a little weirder and of course with Graham Potter increasingly under pressure now and this is the sort of next big question is is Graham Potter going to make it to the end of the season that's what will attach to this number 1 all right Let's move on to number two. Question number two was, can Leicester avoid a relegation battle? Uh, look, after the by the opening day, things were looking really bleak for Leicester as the season kicked off. They had a 2-2 draw with Brentford on the opening weekend. Not bad. But then they slid to lose the next six league matches, including a 5-2 loss to Brighton, a 6-2 loss to Spurs. It was not looking good, and and. By the time I had looked into all of this after the first weekend of the season, they still had yet to make a single signing. The only one that has come in was Voot Face replacing Wesley Fofana. That's it. 
Belgian Reims midfielder Vootface, the guy with the fro. He, he's done a pretty admirable job. I think he came for like five to seven million, a bargain. And probably a player, if he does really well for them over the course of a season, they could sell on for a whole lot more, as Leicester do. They were able to hold on to Yuri T. Lemons, which was huge, James Madison as well. And it helped a lot because with that quality, with Harvey Barnes as well on the side, they ter- started to turn things around, beat Nottingham Forest 4-0, when did the World Cup break with another four wins and a draw under the belt to just like get into mid table? And for I think for Leicester, that's just at least a comfortable place to be. Hopefully they can build off that. But you know, Brendan Rogers said they would be trying to bring in players in January. I don't know what we'll see. So at the time of putting this all together, Leicester in thirteenth position. Uh, they'll play this weekend, but they're only two points ahead of Everton, who sit eighteenth, three points three points ahead of Wolves, who sit 19th. I mean, that's the bottom is very close. I mean, they're they're right on the floor. Um, and the bottom of the league is a mess because, and it will be for, for a few more months, I imagine. Um, but if Leicester can put together some results and just keep them above that scrap, I think they'll be fine. I, I At this point, I do believe that Leicester can avoid being just in this relegation scrap. But the problem is... They also have to look behind them. The teams that are there are teams that are also expected to get out of that situation. Um, they, for instance, Wolves, they have a strong, strong squad. We know this. They just brought in Julian Lopetegui. Everton, they may do some business in January. And look, I, I know a lot of people don't have much faith in Frank Lampard, but if he can create a good vibe between the players and certain guys can get into form, they can get enough results to get out of the situation they're in. Dominic Calvert-Lewin's back. Maybe he'll start scoring. West Ham. I mean, they're in 17th, I think. I mean, they have to improve, you would think, with the players that they have, with all the investment they made. David Moyes, there were big questions about what he would, how he would be able to cope with the amount of investment that they did put into the side. So we'll see about that. But West Ham, you'd think they'd have to improve at some point. And if Steve Cooper can sort of find the right formula out of the 177 players that he has in his squad, um, who knows? Um, maybe this Nottingham Forest side can can make some resurgence. And look, Southampton have won their last two matches. All right, I know that they were in the Cups, but Southampton under Nathan Jones might actually turn a corner at some point. And if they can get on a run... Who knows who's actually in the relegation battle come the end of the season? Leicester's lack of spending has been strange. This is not a club that is just like short of cash. But they have a high wage bill, players that they need to shift on and and get rid of. And then there's players who are just either out of form or are ending the end of their cycle with the club. They received $70 million plus or whatever it was for Fofana. So that should have helped. Uh, they will probably lose Yuri T. Lemons in the summer. I believe his contract is going up. And James Madison, I mean, they'd have to do a lot to keep him, I believe. I, I think a lot of clubs will will be asking about him. Jamie Vardy's time, I mean, who knows? I mean, I, I would imagine it's running out. but And he has, you know, his, his numbers are dipping significantly. But who knows if he'll stay at the club or not. And then you've got just other players, guys like, you know, Pat Sandaka has yet to really bet in. Iose Perez has never quite reached what I think they hoped he would. Johnny Evans is out right now. So Yunchu struggled. So Brendan Rodgers has his work cut out for him. And look, if, if he's shown that he can keep this club afloat in certain situations, and he can also make them thrive. If, if he can make them thrive for P. 
periods of the season, five, six weeks in a row, he'll avoid the relegation battle. Uh, but that was an important, important period of time before the World Cup that put them in the situation they're in a little bit more control. Had it gone on longer, you'd have been really worried for Leicester. But we'll see what happens as the season goes on. All right. Newcastle. Is Newcastle's rise going to lead to European football this season? That was that was the question is, you know, are they gonna are they gonna place high enough to be in Europe? Well, look, the answer is already emphatically yes. They will be in Europe next season. I don't see any way that they can drop out of that kind of contention. Uh, they're currently in third on 35 points. Man United are still coming back, right? They're, they're definitely improving. Spurs are sitting in fourth, hanging out. Chelsea have been terrible. Liverpool just not been able to get rolling again, but we'll see what happens there. So there's teams expected to be above Newcastle that have underperformed. Not so much that Newcastle would be out of the conversation if results were better for the big boys, but it, it does make it so that you can see their chances much better than it would be. Uh, they're right in it, and if Arsenal's title charge was not so convincing, and Man United still look like they could, and Man United or Man, sorry, and Manchester City still look like they could win twenty on the spin if things click, so that it's still open the title race. But Arsenal's title charge has really, it's really changed things because it changes the dynamic of who can be in the top four, and look can. Uh, Maybe can Newcastle get into the into the picture for that? I don't think so. It depends on if they make some huge signings. Anyway, they've been so impressive. They've um, they've turned St. James's Park into a fortress, into the one it should be. Jordy's they're bouncing because they're doing this they're doing this very well. This process of growing, not they don't have a huge massive squad overhaul that they did like Chelsea or Man City back when the money came in for them. Eddie Howe's been fantastic. I think he's done so many things in terms of uh, man-managing the personnel, but also bringing in new players and having a lot of different ways to score goals. Uh, He's shown that his exploits at Bournemouth were not just because, well, he was a lifelong club guy and just knew the place and and had an inspired time. He's he's a quality manager, and it's great for him because, look, the expectations are only going to rise, and he needs to be able to manage those, deal with them, and take this club to the next level, especially as better players start to come in, because they're going to keep investing at some point. But they are flying this season. They've won nine. Yes, they've drawn eight, but they've only lost one game, and they have the best defense in the league. Arsenal are the only other team in the league that have one solitary defeat to their name this season. So, look, Miguel Almiron has been outstanding. Uh, He's looking dynamic. He's looking dangerous. And he's putting up numbers. He's got nine goals and an assist this season. And this is funny because you remember Jack Grealish trolling him in the summer. And now Almiron, his stats are far better than Grealish, uh, who's looking more like a 100 million pound flop at the moment. And then you've got Joe Linton, another success story, a guy who was expensive. I, I think he came for like 30-something and no one knew much about him. Big lumbering forward, didn't really score a lot of goals, didn't seem quick enough for the Premier League. Shifted a little bit into midfield and with a license to get into the box, and he's 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 been incredible. But I just found out also last yesterday he was busted for drunk driving. I'm not sure how that'll affect things. Um, if the club will take some kind of stance on that, if he'll be able to come back and play soon, I, I'm not sure. So that'll be something to look into. Then you got Bruno Guimaraes and Kieran Trippier, two of the I, the best signings that they've made. They've added so much quality to the side with their ability just on the ball. 
their composure, passing, creating chances, and then, of course, Trippier de- delivering incredible set pieces that lead to goals. Nick Pope in goal was an, just a phenomenal signing, very obvious one that was there, but uh, to replace Dubravka was important for them to do because he was aging. And then Sven Botman, bringing Sven Botman, the uh, Lille uh, defender, the Dutch Lille defender who has been outstanding this season. They've only conceded 11 goals. It's the best defense in the Premier League. It's incredible. And Alexander Isak has yet to really get in a solid run of form because he's been injured. So the train keeps on rolling for Newcastle. They just need to keep doing what they're doing and hope that any deals they compete in January can make the side better instead of destabilizing it, can add something to it. Apparently, they're currently being linked to Sergei Milinkovic-Savic from Lazio. That would be huge. Um, look, they're one of the richest clubs in the world, apparently the richest if they're backed by the Saudi royal family. Uh, their rise it has been without the massive crazy spending that we've seen before, and there's something kind of interesting about all that. And the fact that they are now ahead of schedule, well, that makes you wonder, what are they going to do about it? I mean, one of the brightest stories of the week was Newcastle – boy, Jordy, Dan Byrne, who signed from Brighton over the summer, came back to the club. He, yeah, supported as a boy, and he scored the, his first ever goal, the winning goal in their cup win against Leicester. And so you have these kinds of stories less likely once your team is loaded with internationals. So we will see how that pans out in time. All right, question number four. Liverpool versus Manchester City, Volume 5. So for the last four years, unquestionably, these two have dominated the league completely. There's been no one, no one has really challenged at all. It's been sometimes by October that we know that it's just these two involved and no one else really has a chance. So what would happen this season? City have won... uh, Three titles, Liverpool have won one of the last four. And honestly, it's been a bit of a dud this season because Liverpool have just not been able to get into a rhythm. Perhaps the big question I should have asked here was, is Klopp's seventh season curse a real thing? And is it going to happen in England? Uh, It certainly kind of started to look like it after a few weeks, but then Liverpool turned into the enigma that they have just become since their really poor start. They drew 2-2 with Fulham on the opening day, then they lost, but then they beat Bournemouth 9-0, and it was like, wow. Uh, They beat Manchester City 1-0 as well. But the thing is that they've also lost to Arsenal, Nottingham Forest, Leeds, and to Brentford. They're just, you know, sitting in sixth. It's not been a disastrous seventh season for Klopp the way it was at Dortmund because that was stark. I mean, they were just above the relegation zone going into the winter break. And they climbed into mid-table in the second half of the season. He left at the end, paving the way for Tuchel. But Liverpool really have struggled to get going. And everybody says they'll come good at some point. Liverpool will come good at some point. And you kind of have to believe it to a certain degree because they do have players injured. You know, Diaz has been out. That hurts. Firmino's not what he used to be. And Fabinho hasn't been playing very well. Virgil van Dijk has not been in top form. At times, Allison's been a little bit of a liability, but he's also very good. It's 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 that's the thing about Liverpool. It's very harem scarum, as some people uh, like to say. It's it, they're frightening going forward, but they're frightening defensively as well. Uh, so right now, 
they don't look like they're anywhere close to titling, challenging for the title. I mean, the, Arsenal are running away with a pace that they're setting. Manchester City are absolutely capable of catching Arsenal. That's the first thing. So we'll get to Manchester City in a minute. But with Liverpool, they need to start getting a run of results. Darwin Nunes has actually been kind of a focal point of this whole entire thing for fans and pundits to single out because the Liverpool fans love him in a way. They call him chaos. So it's an apt moniker for a player who gets into, like, excellent scoring positions and then seems to wildly fluff his lines or, you know, also make decisions that seem a little bit crazy. But they're also things that show that he's not really short on confidence in himself. He does believe in himself. He tries audacious things. He tried a volley for a ball that came, like, 40 feet out of the air when he could have done something much simpler uh, I forget who that was against. But the other problem for him is that he was uh, very quickly compared to Erling Holland, which really isn't fair because Darwin Nunes has been, you know, really at playing at the in Europe at the top level for three years. He's only had one year where he was, you know, really unplayable and explosive last season. Holland has been, for four years now, he's been breaking goal-scoring records every single season for all the clubs he's been at. So we know this. And his record at the start of this season has been has been insane. I mean, he's got 21 goals in 16 league games, 5-4 and four in the Champions League, came the first player to score three hat tricks in three consecutive games. And De Bruyne is just kind of like, oh, this is great. I can showcase my passing ability. He already has nine assists and three goals. Uh, he just can play a ball pretty much anywhere into the path of an on-running Holland, and they're they're finding each other beautifully. So it, I think the thing about this is that you're hoping for volume five. Well, honestly, this has been this battle's been a little bit of a moot point this season. If Liverpool can actually get their act together, and perhaps you know they could make there could be some kind of relevant storyline here. But at the moment, volume five of this is pretty much already over. It looks like Man City are going to be the ones challenging Arsenal for the title. If anyone can, I do think Man City will. Whether they win it or not, I'm not sure. I mean, it'd be interesting to have a new Premier League winner. Or, wait, can Newcastle make a charge? Who knows? All right, question number five. Manchester United and Eric Ten Hag, will things finally change? A few days ago, I spoke about, uh, I, I made a little uh, post on uh, about Graham Potter. I did a little Instagram post about Graham Potter and uh, whether or not he's under pressure. And one of the things that I pointed to was when Alex Ferguson left Man United. You know, they appointed David Moyes. He was the chosen one. This was the guy. Long term vision. He's going to be great. You know, it may take a little time, but he's going to be good. And things weren't working. At the start. And I think everyone at the time at Man United, their expectation was Ferguson level football. Even if even if under Ferguson they had struggled many times, and people made note of this that, you know, Ferguson had had worse starts to the season, but it just it, it never really seemed to improve. They started to feel the pressure. They fired David Moyes after seven months. Then they brought in Louis Van, Van Gaal, they brought in Jose Mourinho. Those two situations started all right, ended up toxic. They did get some. They did get titles under Mourinho. They won the League Cup and uh, the Europa League. 
And then came in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to kind of stabilize the environment, the mood, the atmosphere, because apparently the place was, yeah, Mourinho had left it with a dark cloud, apparently. And then Ole was in charge for two and a half years. There didn't seem to be uh, a whole lot of progress, even though some of the some of the results that he got, especially at times where he was under pressure, were impressive. But eventually, Ole fell. They brought in Ralph Ragnick for a very strange... That that was a very bizarre episode. And then finally, they settle on Eric Ten Hag. And you just get an understanding from this how long it can take sometimes if you are pulling the trigger on coaches so quickly and if you're only looking for certain types, right? If you're only looking for a big name or, you know, someone that... Uh, you know, showed that they have balls in a major tournament or something. I mean, there has to be more to it. And you have to say, at the very beginning of the season, th- there was some there was some optimism because in uh, preseason, Man United had beaten Liverpool four nil, and you know there was there was some good stuff there. There was some optimism, but. There was also some distraction, right? There was Ronaldo not being there for preseason. We found out later it was because his um, he had a family issue with his daughter. I think I think uh, just just a personal situation that kept him out was totally fair. But then he showed up at one point in preseason, left the game early. Uh, it, it wasn't looking good, uh, especially as the season really started to to start. You you, you got a feeling like, well. You know, where's where's Ronaldo and all this? He doesn't seem as interested as you would think. And then, of course, they lose to Brighton on the opening day, and then they get absolutely humiliated. 4-0 on the road to Brentford. The errors from De Gea were glaring. The build-out from the back was totally disjointed. It was awful. They were giving up just very bad goals. The confidence looked gone. It was It was definitely the low point we have seen for Man United. But they turned things around. Uh, Liverpool came to town and United won 2-1. And then they had four wins in a row before they had a 6-3 rollicking at the hands of Man City. That can happen. But it did mean there was cause for optimism. And, you know, Anthony was starting to show some flair. He was doing well. Tyler Malassia was doing very well as a new signing, uh, you know, replacing Luke Shaw, but also looking then like a backup option to Luke Shaw, who started to play better. Christian Eriksen was showing his value, no doubt. Diego Dallo was starting to really cement a place at right back. Lisandro Martinez was having some good performances. And Casemiro was a clear quality addition to the side, no doubt. The issue, the big issue was really still Ronaldo. Because with him there, there were always questions about whether he should start, whether he should be inside, whether he should come on the field, where should Rashford play, all this. The more Ronaldo got uh, bench time, the better the performances started to be from Rashford, which you knew at some point Ten Hag was getting sick of dealing with this situation, right? And and R- Ronaldo left a game early against Spurs, I believe. He just, like, left before the match was over because he knew he wasn't going to get on. Look, he still wanted to play and start, I guess, understandable, but Ten Hag, this is where he would be tested with the rest of the squad. Could he stand up to a Ronaldo that the young players and everyone else probably didn't you know, want to just get behind 100%. They just probably felt like, look, you know, it'd be easier if you just kind of calm down here. Well, with the World Cup break came the infamous, the amazing moment, right? 
Ronaldo did Eric Ten Hag a huge favor going on that famous two-part interview with Piers Morgan in which he totally roasted the club for everything since Ferguson, um, top to bottom, criticized young players for not being dedicated. Also, just he didn't make himself look good in the process either. I mean, it was it, it was heavy shots fired at the club. Uh, a lot of people, f- there's a lot of people in England that also believe that if you're going with Piers, Piers Morgan, you're uh, you're one of the dredges of society because Piers Morgan is controversial. Not not a lot of people like him, but you know, going on with Piers Morgan sort of just it didn't look as good, and he just kind of seemed like he was just goading Man United. Off he went to Qatar with Portugal. And then the second installment of the interview dropped not long after. United knew they had the perfect opportunity here to cut ties and deal with the situation. And Ronaldo gave Man United an easy out. Whether that's exactly what he wanted, I'm going to do this. They're going to cancel my contract. Now I'm going to be free. And I can just you know sign with whoever I want. Maybe that was his plan. He probably thought he was going to get a better deal than eventually joining Al Nasser in Saudi Arabia. But man, did this help things out for Manchester United, who now... Didn't have to deal with any of the stories associated with them anymore. They could just go ahead and focus on themselves. And Eric Ten Hag can fully implement the style and culture that he wants. He's an interesting figure. I mean, he's a strong character. Um, Apparently, when he was in the interview, he looked at the United board and took him to task and said, look, here are a bunch of the things you're doing wrong. You've signed this player. You've signed these players. You have no... no direction. Uh, you're allowing these kinds of things to happen. Apparently, he was pretty upfront with them, and I, I guess they liked it. Uh, recently, he benched Marcus Rashford for uh, out of the starting lineup because he turned up late to a meeting. I guess he slept in and turned up late to a meeting. Fine. When he was asked about it, Ten Hag said, our rules. This is the way it is. There's accountability for everybody. I remember Paul Scholes made some weird comment that, like, he was very concerned that Ten Hag would do this and how's it gonna, what's it going to do for the rest of the season to Rashford's confidence? Oh, my God. Forget about it. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Anyway, you're seeing the professionalism come out. Uh, they needed a structure. The veterans, they know that they want structure. They know that they want a coach that keeps everyone accountable. That's why I think you're seeing Bruno Fernandez, Casemiro, Varane, Scott, McTominay, Fred, Luke Shaw. Why, you're seeing them all really step up at the moment. So... Look, it's not perfect at Man United, but you can see massive signs for improvement. And if they get the right players in, who's to say they can't challenge for a Premier League title? If Arsenal are doing it right now, you have to imagine any of these top six teams might be capable of doing it if Manchester City are not, you know, in the completely insane form that they have shown at times this season. One key stat to underline about Man United's improvement and then we'll we'll move on to the next thing is that they're the only team in England to be alive in all three of their cup competitions that they had all right of course they're in strong contention in the league to finish in the Champions League spots but they are still in the Europa League they're still in the Carabao Cup and they're still in the FA Cup and if you think about the Carabao Cup they're in the last four they have a genuine opportunity to win some silverware something that Ten Hag would love to get in his first year at the club getting a trophy, building that vibe between the players, young players starting to get a little bit more hungry. Because a lot of players have said in the past, once you get a trophy, you kind of get addicted to wanting to win more. If you haven't done it yet, you don't know what it takes, and so you don't feel that pressing need as much. So that's Man United. Question number six, who will finish third and fourth? Well, this is a mess. Um, 
If this was tough to call in the first opening weeks of the season, it's only gotten more difficult, and there's reasons why. So Chelsea have almost removed themselves from the comp- from the uh, contention, from the conversation. I, I, I would there's I don't see any way Chelsea make it close to the top four. But it's Newcastle and Arsenal that have thrown everything into a little bit of disarray here. Nobody expected Arsenal to be first, top of the table, let alone, I think most people expected them to be, you know, fighting for fourth. I don't think very many people had them in third. Most people had them fighting for fourth or fifth. Most people had Newcastle maybe fighting for fifth or sixth. With Arsenal in first and Newcastle in third, well, that takes two of the teams that probably were meant to be in there out. Manchester City will finish first or second. I I, I can't see them doing uh, anything other than one or the other. Arsenal, probably the same. They will probably finish first or second. Which then means you've got third and fourth. And since Arsenal weren't supposed to be there, possibly in Newcastle either, this makes things very interesting. So let's go through. United are currently in fourth right now with Newcastle in third. Uh, they're level on points. Uh, 35 together, but Newcastle have a game in hand, slightly better goal difference. Spurs then are in fifth on 33 points. Liverpool are in sixth on 28. Below them are Fulham, Brighton, Brentford, and then Chelsea. So the four teams, these four are really unlikely to get into the race. Fulham beating Chelsea last night, awesome for them. Brighton have been terrific under Deserby. Brentford are... They're, they're a very good side, and they're very, very good at home. But over the course of the season, you think these ones, what they're really fighting for is probably can they get into sixth? Can they get into seventh? They're in, you know, they're fighting for seventh. Can they get into sixth? Chelsea need to start leapfrogging some of those teams, as we've talked about already. But I don't think they will be in the battle for the top four. So the January window is going to be crucial for these teams. Newcastle, they might invest. We don't know. But in order for them to keep going... If injuries come up in the second half of the season, it could be it, it, that could have a, a real impact depending on the team. Newcastle are not in Europe at the moment; they're only playing game a week. Arsenal are not in Europe at the moment, so it, it, there is something there for these teams. And you know, Liverpool—they've already signed Cody Hakpo, which is a, I think a very good deal. They need someone in the midfield to help out because Jordan Henderson's getting older. Fabinho and Thiago have been struggling to have an impact. So they'll need to do something there. Man United, uh, they've brought in Voot Veghorst now on loan, which I think could be a very useful signing. A lot of people are dogging this, but don't forget the last 20 minutes, uh, you know, don't forget the last 20 minutes of the 90 that we saw him against Argentina. He scored twice, and one of the goals was a goal you'll always remember in World Cup history, that very ballsy free kick the Dutch tried in uh, at the very end of extra time or of uh, stoppage time against Argentina to tie the game 2-2. I think Voot Veghorst is a good player. He's got a great record everywhere. He got relegated with Burnley, but that side was going nowhere anyway. It'll be interesting. Spurs as well. Like, what can they do? They're, they're kind of unpredictable. If they can keep important players healthy, namely Kulusevsky, Bentancourt, Kane, and can Son get started? Because he he hasn't really had a, had a good season so far. So a lot of questions there with those teams. And I, I think there's... Between Liverpool, Man United, and Spurs, you see uh, quite a bit of similarities in what they're capable of doing with their squads. It's going to be fascinating to see who can actually take those third and fourth spots and if Newcastle will be able to do it. I mean, I think everyone from a sort of neutral point of view, just a sporting point of view, kind of would root to see something like that happen. Um, 
the other thing to remember is that Man United are in the Europa League. Spurs, they uh, will play against AC Milan in the Champions League. Liverpool will have Real Madrid. Uh, you know, if, if they continue in the competition, that may have an impact. If they go out, well, then they've got a clear path to focus on the league. All right, final question, number seven, and then we'll wrap this up. How will the World Cup affect the league? This is the shortest. Uh, this is the shortest section so far because we still don't know. It's it's actually unfortunately too early to tell. Look, Enzo Fernandez had he joined Chelsea for what would have been a club record fee and one of the highest fees paid for a midfielder would have been an interesting story. Um, Chelsea backed out of that decision. Apparently, they didn't want to pay the full release clause. They were willing to pay less, but you know, or they didn't want to pay the release clause in the moment. They were willing to pay more money, but in installments over time. Benfica said no. Apparently, they walked away from the deal. Look, everyone's back. There's no more players who are away on break anymore. Messi's back. Everyone's back. France and Argentina players have all returned. Uh, we'll see if there's a hangover or resurgence from certain players. Uh, today, I watched. Aston Villa against Leeds, and Emmy Martinez does look very confident at the moment, right? Marcus Rashford had a very positive tournament for England, and he has continued to score goals. He's, he's, he's been just really impactful for Man United lately. I think Ronaldo leaving has helped a lot. Alexis McAllister, brilliant. Ginger Argentine, got to love the guy. He scored two goals on his Brighton return, one an amazing flick. So it's hard to know how the tournament's going to affect individuals uh, specifically and what kind of a weight it has in the transfer market, right? We were sort of waiting on Sofian Amrabat and Azadi Nunahi from uh, Morocco who who had impressive tournaments. Dominic Livakovic maybe, right? The Croatian goalkeeper from Dinamo Zagreb, right? There's questions about where will some of these players that did show up at the World Cup and play well, will they get big moves? January is the tough window, as everyone says. So maybe that shine that players normally get from the World Cup and get big money moves, maybe that just won't really happen because you've got the January window where these transfers are harder to make. They're harder to do because clubs are far less likely to sell key assets in January. But so I I, I imagine that 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 the shine from the World Cup or or if a player didn't have a good World Cup, I think that's actually just going to go away. If you're already watching, like, everyone seems to have completely moved on, right? The players, they, that's what they have to do. They're professionals. They can't just sit around and think about the World Cup. The ones that I would say are the most affected would be the Argentine players or players who went, didn't play a single bit at all and are maybe struggling also at their clubs, Right. You know, there there may be some of those players who are just struggling with not being involved. Other than that, I, I, I actually wonder if the World Cup will have much of an impact at all. I think that once we get into the Champions League portion of the season and things start to heat up, most people will forget. So it's going to be fa- it's going to be absolutely fascinating. I, I think that this was the question that we all wondered, is this going to have a huge impact and then it might turn out not to in the slightest because you also have to remember how the World Cup started. It was like one week earlier we're watching Premier League games and then boom, we had to switch. And then boom, we had to switch back. And we're doing it. The players are doing it. Everyone moves on really quickly. So from what I've seen, from what I can tell, this is what it is. Anyway, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. 
It's starting to get dark outside. My light's going down. I'm Sebastian North. This is Campfire Football. Have a great one. Episode 130.